You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm 119, and we'll read Yod, Nun, and Pei. And you may wonder what that is about. Well, if you look above verse 73, it's Yod. And if you look above 105, it's none. And if you look above 129, it's pay. One way or another will get you to learn the Hebrew alphabet. In any case, we turn to Psalm 119, beginning at verse 73 to 80, which constitutes that section called Yod. And there the word of our God reads as follows, Your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. May those who fear you rejoice when they see me, for I have put my hope in your word. I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. May your unfailing love be my comfort according to your promise to your servant. Let your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be put to shame for wronging me without cause, but I will meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me, those who understand your statutes. May my heart be blameless toward your decrees that I may not be put to shame. Then we turn to Nun, verse 105 on page 962. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept, O Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me, but I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. And then we turn to pay, 129 and following. Your statutes are wonderful, therefore I obey them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from the oppression of men, that I may obey your precepts. May your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your decrees. Streams of tears flow from my eyes. For your law is not obeyed. As we use the Heidelberg Catechism as our preaching guide in the afternoon services, we have come to Lord's Day 6, question and answer 19. The question asks, from where do you know this? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise, later He had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his 
only Son. Love the congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Sources are important. Imagine that you are a newspaper reporter and you somehow get hold of a most fantastic story. You write it up, you go to your editor, and you ask him to give you the green light to have it printed. One question that he will surely ask you is, what's your source? Where did you get this story from? And the reason why he will ask you that question, especially if the story is rather spectacular, is because it may have a lot of implications. If the story happens to be false, it may draw all kinds of lawsuits. It may damage the reputation of the newspaper. It may also affect the truth. And so there are a lot of reasons why an editor would ask a reporter, what's your source? But you know, that's an important question, not only in newspaper reporting, it's also an important question in history. Some of you, not all of you, but some of you may remember Watergate. It's a great scandal that took place in the United States of America in 1972, which brought down President Richard Nixon and sent people like Chuck Colson, John Ehrlichman, Bob Haldeman, and others to jail. If you don't know about it, you can read about it in Wikipedia. And why mention it here? Well, because that particular story also has to do with sources. Two very enterprising reporters, one by the name of Carl Bernstein, the other by the name of Bob Woodward, got hold of this fantastic story about Democratic Party headquarters being burglarized and bugged. And they went to their editor with it, and they wanted him to allow them to print their story, and he asked, what's your source? And they said their source was a man called Deep Throat that he was the basis of their story. And Deep Throat was supposedly some kind of hidden high government official who had access to all of the pertinent information. And it was on the basis of that source that the editor said, go ahead and print the story. And it led to the downfall of a president. So you can see this business of sources is important in life, not only in history, and not only in newspaper stories, but also we can add here in the Heidelberg Catechism. I remind you that last time we stopped at question and answer 18 of Lord's Day 6, and in both Lord's Day 5 and 6, we were speaking about, the Catechism was speaking about this great Savior that we have, or that we need. And finally, in answer 18, we got that glorious shout that our Savior, who is true God and true man, and true and righteous man as well, is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the glorious time. But the question is, is it true? What's the source for question and answer 18. What's it based on? 
How do we know it's real and it's true and it's certain? Well, this afternoon in question and answer 19, we get the answer. The question is asked, from where do you know all of this? So Heidelberg Catechism, what is your source? How do you know that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the real thing, the real McCoy, the the genuine redeemer, savior, mediator of his people? And the answer, we know it from the Holy Gospel. The Gospel proves that our message is real and historic and authentic and certain. Well, beloved, you can say that such an answer begs that we look a little closer together this afternoon at the gospel. What is it? Where does it come from? And who wrote it? And so let's explore the gospel together further this afternoon. I preach to you on holy gospel, holy light. First, we'll look at the character, the content, and finally, the climax. Well, beloved, the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us, according to the Scriptures, that this special knowledge of our mediator and deliverer is based, rooted, and anchored in the Holy Gospel. Now, what is that? What is the Holy Gospel? First of all, take the word holy. Technically, the word holy means separated from sin, dedicated to God. Negatively, it's about separation from everything that corrupts and defiles and undermines you. Positively, it's dedication. Everything that works for your good, benefit, and blessing. But yet here, I dare to say, in question and answer 19, the word holy is is not quite so loaded, because here, holy actually is more a synonym for special, unique, or different, or if you will, set apart, divinely ordained. So this gospel then has a special source, unlike any other. It's holy. It's it's different. You, You can't really put it in the same camp as the writings of Aristotle or Plato or the plays of Shakespeare or the poems of Shelley or Byron or others. Well, there is a sense in which this particular book is unique and different from all the rest. This is holy. Holy stuff, if you will. But it's also something else. It's gospel. And I think you all know the word gospel simply means glad tidings, good news, great announcements. And if you think about it, that's something that we all need today and almost every day. This past week wasn't very good On the news front, the economic news wasn't very good. The stock market went up and down like a yo-yo. And maybe our RSPs went the same way. Russia's best hockey team, some say, died in a horrific plane crash. Avoid Russian airlines, please, at all costs. And, of course, today we are dealing with the 10th anniversary of 9-11, the destruction of the Trade Center Towers in New York, the attack on the Pentagon, the airline crash in Pennsylvania. 
By the way, last night, it was kind of late, and I was coming back from Hamilton after a series of meetings, and I'm flying on WestJet, and what are they showing on the TV screens but a film about United Airlines number 93 that plowed into the ground in Pennsylvania as a result of all the stuff that happened on 9-11. So not exactly the most encouraging news when you're flying at 35,000 feet in an airline to be reading about terrorism and airline crashes. And so there, there is no end, you might say, to the bad news. And sometimes the question arises, well, is there any really good news out there? Is there anything left in this world that can make us smile, that can cause us to laugh, that can make us happy? In a world of 9-11s and terrorisms and uprisings and bad economic news and moral decline, is there still out there a source of gladness and encouragement? And you know, Lord's Day 6, question and answer says, yes. No matter what, there is still good news out there. There is still a source of happiness. There is still a cause for laughter and for joy. There is still such a thing as the gospel. But how do we know that it's real, that it's authentic, that it's genuine? Every day we also encounter all kinds of false stories, don't we? Stuff that's fictional, fantasy, embroidered, invented. Well, the answer, beloved, lies ultimately in God. For who is the author, who is the source of this particular gospel that we're speaking about together this afternoon? Who really at bottom informs us that Jesus Christ is the real mediator and the great deliverer? It is God. And that's why answer 19 says, where do you know from this from? From the Holy Gospel, which God himself revealed. Notice there the catechism is picking up something that you hear time and time again in the Bible. God spoke. God said. God is constantly speaking. And holding forth the gospel, the good news of our salvation comes from him. And you know as well as I, it comes from him through the Holy Spirit. Turn with me for a moment to 2 Peter chapter 1, the verses 20 and 21. Page 1894. And notice there, the Apostle Peter says in the verses 20 and 21, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's important that we understand that this is one of those pivotal passages where the Word speaks about itself. No prophecy of Scripture says 
he very clearly here has been made up by a, a prophet himself. He didn't suck it out of his thumb. No prophecy of the gospel has a human origin. It all comes from God. And specifically, Peter says, it comes from God, the Holy Spirit. He's the one who carries these men along. It's as if they're all in a boat, and the boat is called the Holy Spirit, and they're coming down a river. And the Spirit is carrying them along to publish the truth of the gospel. Connected to that, there is also 2 Timothy chapter 3, the verses 16 and 17 on page 1855. To Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's not inspired by God, it's expired. By God. Scripture is the breath of his mouth. And because it's the breath of his mouth, Paul says it's useful, it's profitable for, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in, in righteousness. It's profitable for molding and shaping people according to the will of God. And the reason why God is doing that is so that the man of God, the woman of God, May be thoroughly equipped for every good work. May have a profitable, God-honoring, God-glorifying, God-obedient life. So really, according to the Apostle Paul's word to Timothy, this is God's training manual for his people. It's what equips us for life. And that's important, and it's not to be ignored. Unfortunately, however, it it is more and more being ignored today. Maybe it's come across your radar screen as well that there are a lot of Christians, people who call themselves Christians in North America, even Northern Europe, who, who are no longer bothering with God's Good news, training manual. We have many people who call themselves believers but who don't read the Word, who don't study it personally or collectively. And we have many churches that hold worship services in which the manual is hardly opened, explained, or expounded. It's been eclipsed by testimonies and musical performances and personal stories and anecdotes and jokes and, yes, also by direct revelations. People these days love to claim they don't really need the Bible because they have a direct pipeline to God. He tells them directly what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to live. That's the claim. Unfortunately, the claim doesn't always bear up. 
And so, beloved, we have a situation which really is a situation of sadness and distress because here God has given to his people his holy gospel, one of the best presents in all the world. He's inspired it, protected it, guided it, preserved it. And we are in danger of neglecting it. And in that context, it's good to remind us that this afternoon as well, we're kicking off another season of all kinds of church activities as the fall and winter of 2011-2012 approaches. And if you read, of course, the church news and you read the liturgy sheet, you see there are all kinds of activities. We have youth activities, young people's activities, catechism classes, choir practices, all manner of meetings and all kinds of organizations. And you know, it's all great. I don't want to pour cold water on any of it. But the point to remember is that in all of this, what needs to be forced first and foremost is the study of God's good news training manual. In all of this busyness, let's make sure that we keep the gospel central. That we keep it alive. That we remain a people of the book. And so, beloved, I encourage you this afternoon to dig into the gospel. Also in this new season and this new year. And as you dig into it, dig into its marvelous variety as well. You know, Lord's Day 6, question and answer 19, reminds us as well that there's a lot of variety and diversity here. And for it recounts how God has revealed the gospel in paradise, how he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and the prophets, foreshadowed by the ceremonies and sacrifices of the law, and lastly fulfilled in his son. Now, we usually read over that rather quickly. But maybe this afternoon we should just stop for a moment and reflect on it. First, it tells you that the gospel came to us from the very beginning. The Catechism talks about revealed in paradise. And, you know, before man even fell, there was gospel. I know the footnote at the bottom of the catechism, this section is Genesis 3.15, but, but think about it for a moment. Gospel didn't come about just after the fall. Gospel was there already before the fall. When, when God walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when he fellowshiped with them, communed with them, shared with them, enlightened them, all that represents is glorious good news. And then, of course, the fall came in to the picture. But God didn't cut off all the contact. True, he, he expressed his anger and his displeasure and his wrath and his judgment, but he also still promised. He promised a great deliverer. He promised a head crusher, a serpent pulverizer. You see, good news has been there from the start. 
And at the same time, you can also say the catechism reminds us that this gospel is long and it is historic. It goes back to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you may remember that with all of them, God made a covenant. Or he renewed a covenant. In other words, he entered into a relationship with them of promises and demands, of blessings and curses. And he said, I'm going to be your God. And you're going to be my people. And if that isn't good news, I don't know what is. So you see, the gospel is also very old. Very ancient. It goes way back. And sir, the catechism also reminds us that the gospel is repetitive. Notice it talks about revealed in paradise, patriarchs, and prophets. And you know, there are a lot of prophets, right? There are major prophets, minor prophets, although I I think those names really are rather poor. Um, I think we'd all like to be a major prophet. None of us would like to be a minor prophet prophet. What that really means is some prophecies are long, of course, and some are short, but we're all at the same level. But the point is that all of these prophets, why are they there? What are they doing? They're constantly reminding God's people of who their God is and of what he has promised them and and given them and will do for them. The prophets are the ones who keep the good news alive. Especially in the dark days of disobedience and rebellion. People like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Malachi and Zechariah and Zephaniah and Nahum and all the rest. Constantly God raises up Another prophet and another prophet to keep the good news flowing. Fourthly, the catechism also informs us that this gospel message comes in many diverse forms. It speaks about sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Now, if we read over this section quickly, we really read over this minor section really, really quickly because we're not really interested, right, in sacrifices and all those ancient ceremonies. But but really, if you think about it, maybe we should change that a bit. Maybe we should have a great dose of curiosity when it comes to all of these sacrifices and ceremonies, no matter what they are. And maybe as we deal with them, we should ask ourselves this pivotal question, because that's at the heart of it all. Where is the gospel in this sacrifice? Where is the gospel in this ritual? Where is the gospel in this ceremony? Because it's there. The Day of Atonement, the cereal offerings, the dress of the high priest, the Feast of Weeks, the measurements of the tabernacle and the temple, all the rest of it, the gospel is there. 
Unfortunately, we don't always have the patience and the perseverance to discover it and to identify it. But truly, if we spent a little time, perhaps, and maybe that's something for another season of Bible study, is working through all this Old Testament stuff that we think has little significance, but which, as a matter of fact, has great significance for the gospel. Fifthly, if the Catechism teaches us that the gospel has beginnings, is long and ancient, and is repetitive and diverse, the Catechism also reminds us that the gospel is progressive and climactic. You know, really, the gospel represents one unfolding story. Now, it's popular in our time, and not just in our time, but also before us, that people would take the Bible and chop it, right? You, you, you chop it between Old Testament and New Testament, and then Old Testament, well, you know, it's war and blood, and you can kind of forget about that. And you should concentrate on the New Testament because that's light and peace and salvation and and grace and glory. So what happened is you drove a wedge to the Bible. Well, I'm saying to you this afternoon that that's a horrible way to treat the one revelation of our God. I'd almost go so far as to say it's blasphemous. Because it's really saying that, that we don't really want this God until he steps into the New Testament. And as long as he's busy in the Old Testament, well, we'll keep our distance from him and he should keep his distance from us. But beloved, the gospel, the Bible, tells one story. It tells that one glorious story of how God works out his redemption for his people in Jesus Christ. It all moves in one direction. It sings one song. It entails one line. One history. And it comes to one climax. And only one. And we need to see this and realize this. You know, unfortunately, there are people who read the gospel and who not only divvy up the gospel and put it against one another, but they also never see the climax. You remember the Lord Jesus Christ speaking, as he did often with the scribes and the Pharisees, and and this is an incident that you find in John chapter 5, where, where the Lord Jesus actually compliments the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says to them, you, you diligently study the Scriptures. In other words, you guys are really disciplined and determined when it comes to studying God's Old Testament Word. But no sooner does he say that, no sooner does he issue the compliment, and the compliment turns sour because he says, because you think that by them you possess eternal life. So what's going on? 
Well, the scribes and Pharisees had convinced themselves that the more you study the word, the closer you will be to heaven. The more you read, the more you discuss, the more you memorize, the more you know that all of this is some kind of great religious saving, self-saving, self-promoting activity. Of course, it's not, is it? But when you say it's not, realize that this particular problem isn't just with the scribes and the Pharisees because people today, and even we today, sometimes think, well, I I should do my Bible study because there's also this idea that it helps me get saved. It's part of the whole process of Christian effort, religious effort. It's as if in the back of our minds we all have difficulty getting away from the fact that somehow and somewhere God is keeping score. We keep score of how often we pray, how often we read the Bible, how well we keep the commandments, and hopefully the score is good and we get saved. But notice, beloved, in John 5, the Lord Jesus Christ torpedoes this entire idea. He says, scripture study, gospel study, biblical study is profitable, yes, but it's only profitable if it leads people to me. Because I'm the only one who can save you. He says to the scribes and the Pharisees, These are the scriptures. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that testifies about me. The entire gospel is about Christ. And the scribes and the Pharisees had Christ standing before them. And they couldn't see him. They couldn't see the fulfillment and the climax of the gospel. You know, our Lord Jesus makes the same point in Luke 24. There you have those men who are traveling to Emmaus. Probably two of them, but we're not quite sure. They they were rather confused and befuddled because of everything they had witnessed in Jerusalem during that climactic week of Christ's suffering, trials, and crucifixion and death. And as they're walking away from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which isn't all that terribly far... Somebody joins them, and that someone, of course, we know, because we know the beginning and the end and the middle of the story, we know is Jesus. And in verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus did something. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You see, he pulled all the loose ends together and he opened their eyes. What would have been a a fly on the wall? What what a thrill it, it would have been to be able to listen to this conversation between Jesus and these men going to Emmaus. 
What a joy when he, the greatest teacher of all, explains the meaning of the entire Scriptures. And I wonder that later on, these men, as they reflect upon this experience of being taught by Jesus, that they, they, they say this, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us? What's the result of all this Bible study? This Christ-led Bible study is heartburn. Burning hearts. What an experience. And you know, if you think of it, that's really where our, our Bible study as well should bring us today. When we study the Word together, also in the coming weeks and months, it's not because we're simply trying to increase our religious data bank. It shouldn't be because we're trying to score religious points with God. Well, the purpose of all of this study is to ignite our hearts in Jesus. And how great and glorious is our Savior. So, you know, as we begin a new season, do not fail to see the forest because of the trees. Keep on looking to Jesus Christ and how God has fulfilled the gospel everywhere in and through his Son. For truly, we need the gospel and the world needs The gospel. It's the only thing that really gives us hope and confidence and perspective and meaning and happiness and joy. Imagine. Just imagine for a moment that you and I lived in a world where we had no Bibles. How would we know about God the Father? How do we know about his promises? How would we know about Jesus Christ? How would we know about salvation, righteousness, and eternal life? What a terrible state of affairs. You know, it's no wonder that people without the gospel resort to stargazing, navel-gazing, and tea leaves, and Ouija boards, and all kinds of other desperate devices. They so desperately want to get connected to the source and the maker and the creator and the redeemer of the universe. Well, beloved, you and I are so privileged to be so connected So I say to you this afternoon, rejoice in the gospel. Rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Treasure it. Explore it. Study it. Personally and together. And not for its own sake, and not for your sake, but for the sake of Jesus Christ, who is the end 
and the climax of the gospel and the source of our life and joy and peace and glory. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.